welcome to Fortune Favors the Bold. I'm your host, Ashley C. Ford. And today, that C stands for cashless. Ashley Cashless Ford. Because this episode is about how cash is being replaced around the world with electronic payments. This is a very special episode of Fortune Favors the Bold. We taped it in front of a live audience in Manhattan. It was a really fun, informative discussion about what a cashless future might look like. I can't wait to play that conversation for you. But first, I want to give you some context about moving toward a cashless society. Imagine using your phone to give a subway busker a couple bucks. Imagine being able to walk out of any store without waiting in line to check out. Imagine never having to worry about carrying large amounts of cash around. In some parts of the world, people already do all of this. In many Scandinavian countries, something like 90% of all financial transactions are on debit cards. In Kenya, when people transfer money, they're using an app on their phone to do it more than half the time. Now, me personally, I'm already pretty cash-free. Right now, there's $30 in my wallet, and it's been there for months. I use my cards for almost everything. Just a quick swipe or tap of an app, and I can buy what I want. I love not using cash because I actually lose a lot of it. And I know I'm 31 and should probably be a little more responsible than that. I'm not. But I'm not the only one going cash-free. It's predicted that in 2020, in less than two years, over half of U.S. consumers will be using mobile apps to pay for what they want instead of cash. So in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation about what going cashless looks like worldwide, what we in the U.S. can learn from other countries, and how to get it right, how to make sure we're bringing everyone along with us when we go cashless. This is something that's going to have a major impact on our day-to-day lives, and we'll talk about that. I was joined by some amazing experts. I hope you enjoy it. First up, we're going to have the economist Ravi Shankar Chaturvedi. He's the doctoral research fellow at the Fletcher School's Institute for Business in the Global Context. And the Fletcher School partnered with MasterCard to create the 2017 Digital Evolution Index, which measures the growth of digital economies and connectivity around the world. Ravi, come on out. Next up, humanitarian Rebecca Manti. She's the Associate Director of Institutional Philanthropy and Partnerships at the International Rescue Committee. The IRC has partnered with MasterCard to distribute cash relief in the form of digital e-vouchers. Rebecca is going to help us understand how digital payments are helping people around the world. Cool, cool. Let's give it up for Rebecca. And finally, David Baga. David is the chief business officer for Lyft. Maybe you've heard of it. I don't know. Perhaps. It's an on-demand ride-sharing service where rides are paid for digitally. Lyft is also a MasterCard business partner. They've implemented a feature called MasterCard Send, which provides quick payment to drivers. Thank you so much for being here, David. Thank you. So we're going to open up with a little icebreaker question. Is that cool with you guys? That wasn't in the prep script. Well, (laughs) the good news is once we're live, I can do whatever I want, David. (laughs) I can ask you whatever up here. You're going to keep messing with me. You're going to find out. (laughs) So 
<laughs> Let's start with Robbie. Robbie, what's the last thing you paid for in cash? I honestly can't remember. I really can't remember when I paid for anything in cash. It's been at least five years. Five but years? But I can tell you the last time I handled cash and I brought back a $10 bill from New Zealand last week um, as a souvenir because nice. they, have, they have a picture of a woman on a $10 bill. They're ahead of us. They got a woman on a $10 bill. Uh, it's coming. Uh, it's coming. I can't wait to get Tubman's. It's not the queen, though. It's not the queen? It's not the queen. It's not the queen. It's Kate Shepard, the, uh, the pioneer of women's suffrage movement. Uh, wow. Yeah. So I brought back that $10 bill so I could give it to uh, my little nieces and nephews and Aww. show them that, you know, we can aspire to be better here. Yeah. We could, uh, I mean... I'm here for that. I like New Zealand. Isn't that where they did Lord of the Rings? Don't, you don't have to answer that. That is correct. That's right. You don't have to answer that nerd question. Rebecca, how about you? Uh, so as someone who waited tables, um, I like to do the cash tip when I can. So that was my last um, mm -hmm. experience with cash, probably a few weeks ago. Excellent. Excellent. How about you, David? I was in Mexico and I bought this awesome poncho on a, from a street vendor. I've always wanted one with a hood. I should have worn it tonight, actually, but I didn't yeah. know you'd ask that question. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you could have punched it up a little bit. Like, you gotta rock the poncho. Yeah. But, you know, at least you own it I now. Do. Yeah. You do. You can wear it wherever you want now. There never has to be another regret in your future, David. <laughs> Now, I'm going to start here with Robbie. Robbie, you spent a lot of time looking at the way different countries around the world have gone cashless. What does a cashless society look like that you've seen? It's here. It's, yeah? Cashless society is here. I mean, you could look at, you could look at Scandinavia. You could look at Sweden. And it's, mm -hmm. it's probably a country that, like you just said a little while ago, rapidly going cashless. Mm -hmm. But it's also understandable that Scandinavia would, uh, given the fact that they have... Uh, they have had uh, tremendous levels of digital advancement over the years, and uh, also they've, uh, you know, they've they've invested heavily over time in educating their people uh, mm -hmm. in in uh, in you know advanced utilization of electronic money, digital money. Mm -hmm. uh, a more fascinating cashless society is China. Real, talk to me about China, Ravi. So, 2009. I'll give you two data points. Mm -hmm. 2009. E-commerce in China, two-thirds of all e-commerce transactions in China were cash in delivery, which means that you order for something, you say pay, but you don't pay. When the goods come to your doorstep, you pay the person in cash. Hmm. That was 2009, two-thirds of all e-commerce transactions. 2015, two-thirds of all transactions in China are cashless. So you get out of your train station, you're buying a banana from a hawker stall, you're paying on one of the three mobile wallets, Alibaba, Baidu, or Tencent. Wow. That is a cashless society. And it, that happened in six years. Now, Rebecca, you work with the International Rescue Committee, and its mission is to respond and help people whose lives have been affected by disaster. Now, when I think humanitarian effort or humanitarian response, I'm thinking blankets, water, food. But you guys have started handing out these digital e-vouchers, these this essentially money, for uh, digital money for people who are in this situation. 
how did it come about? Like, how did you guys realize that, like, this sort of payment and being able to have access to something like that is a humanitarian issue? Because it doesn't come top of mind, I think, right. for me and I think most people. Well, you're right. And so buying and selling goods is still a part of humanitarian assistance. But mm-hmm. what we've found in the past 10 to 15 years or so is that people want more choice and cash. And when I say cash for IRC, that also includes digital payments. So it's a whole spectrum of actual hard cash all the way to ATM cards or mobile money. So for the humanitarian sector, we're still using all of those pieces and with a commitment to to work more towards digital payments. But what we found uh, for refugees uh, in the past few years is that now 60% of refugees are, are in cities. They're in urban environments rather than refugee camps. And so that changes the needs. And we found that when digital payments are in place, you can create a marketplace. So in some of the most challenging places in the world where everything's been destroyed, Mm -hmm. when you have cash or an exchange of of finances, you're starting to rebuild. Um, And so as I said, for families and individuals that we're working with, having choice, rather than an organization telling you that you need a blanket, the opportunity to say, actually, I'd rather pay my rent this month. I'd rather buy food or send my kids to school. That's um, that's what we really want to work towards giving, you know, people who we serve all over the world. And so MasterCard has actually been a great partner in because we work in such hard to reach places, connectivity, mobile access are very difficult. And so what we've worked on with MasterCard is called MasterCard Aid. And it's basically a a closed loop system where you can simulate the benefits of of choice and of rebuilding marketplaces without connectivity. So you can use an ID pin and you can go to a vendor and they'll have your name and they'll have a whole variety of goods that you can purchase in the middle of a of a conflict zone. So it's been it's been a great shift and really empowering for the people we work with. I bet. That sounds really useful. Can you tell me is it, can you give me an example of what it looks like for like a specific family? Um, just because I, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about people who are in crisis, when we talk about refugees, mm-hmm. um, we talk about them as like just like a group. Right. And it's like, you know, these people instead of saying, you know, well, this is what it looked like for these individuals. So can you just share a little bit of that? Sure. Um, There's uh, an Iraqi family that we've worked with um, and they, you know, fled dire circumstances. And so it was uh, a mother, a father, a son and a daughter, 13 year old and 11 year old. And so, you know, they really left with with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ability to to access cash and, and make choices was, you know, what we heard from them is this is the first time we've actually felt like we can make our own decisions in a long time. Um, and so they got to choose where they lived and kind of what their house looked like. And they had the opportunity to start saving to send their kids to school and enough money to start um, for the father to actually start going out and looking for jobs. So they could pay for transportation to try to connect and, and really start rebuilding their lives. Wow. I love that. You guys are doing good work. Come Thank through, you. IRC. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, y'all already knew We appreciate that, yeah. you. Thanks. Girl. 
You know who else is doing good work? Lyft. Lyft, <laughs> Lyft is out here doing totally. good work. David, talk to me about Lyft. I want to know, was the cashlessness, was that always part of the Lyft model? Because you guys are kind of a company of the future at this point, because you've always been cashless, like from inception, correct? Mostly. Mostly. Yeah, so a, a lot of folks don't know that uh, Lyft is John and Logan's second ride-sharing company. The first uh, was called ZimRide, and it was designed for college and university students that uh, were trying to travel long distance. It was a modern-day bulletin board. So if I was a student that was studying at Stanford University, and I'm trying to get home to Escondido on the weekend, I get matched with the other student, and we share the cost of the ride there and get back, hopefully, on, on time for class on Monday. That uh, was a moderately successful business, and they asked themselves, uh, I think it's, it started in 2007, and in 2012, they started asking themselves, what would happen, knowing everything we know about this category and everything that's happened in the technology landscape, if we press the reset button and start it over, what would we do? And with that single question, they realized that th these, these supercomputers that had by then become ubiquitous in certainly in San Francisco and, and now almost everywhere, they change everything. And, and, and within it, you're getting, you're getting trust, you're getting security, you're getting identification, you're able to get real-time location, GPS, you're getting payments. And so they redesigned the entire service around an idea that they could bring to market something that would happen with a push of a button, a complete stranger could pick you up. And so the, the, the cashless element of it uh, certainly takes friction out. And I think that the first time you experience ride sharing and you hop out of the car and you don't have that awkward exchange or those tiny little receipts we all lose, <laughs> you do think it's magic. And, and from there, there's really no turning back. But it's also really built into the underlying trust and safety philosophy that we started with. We think that cashless is safer for the driver community mm -hmm. as well as the passenger community. We like the digital receipt. We love the ability to show the, the origination and the destination all in one package in your email. And we think that combination is very powerful. It is. It is very powerful. People love Lyft. Clearly. Clearly people love Lyft. Y'all seem to be doing okay. Um, <laughs> Ravi, different countries have gone cashless in varying degrees, obviously. Um, and you've studied that at the Fletcher School along with your colleagues. But some countries are way ahead of the game, right? Can you give us an idea of that range on a global scale of countries, and you know, where they land with cashlessness? Absolutely. I think it's fascinating to look at the global patterns on these things, right? So, mm -hmm. and, the, and, and countries are all over the place. I mean, there are some countries where the cost of cash is really high. And, and uh, when we talk about, I think it would probably make sense for me to break down the cost of cash. Depends on whose perspective you take. So let's take three perspectives. Uh, let's take the perspective of consumers. There are three kinds of costs that consumers incur, right? Uh, there's a cost cost, the real cost of, you know, the ATM charges. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, if you have to travel a mile uh, to, get to, the, to get to the bank or the ATM, there is a cost cost to get mm -hmm. there. Uh, and uh, so that is, that is one cost. There is the inconvenience cost. And, you know, there is the, uh, or the opportunity cost. You know, you could be doing better things with your time. And, and then there is, the, um, uh, there is the time cost you know, waiting in lines. Uh, so there is, there is that cost. So that is one, so that is the consumer perspective of cost of cash. 
you take the business perspective, cost of handling cash, uh, you know, closing the cash register day in and day out, sending it to the bank, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Uh, that's cost. Pilferage. 21% That's a cute word. I like that you call it pilferage and not stealing. Because <laughs> <laughs> where I come from, we call it stealing. You stole it. You ain't pilfered Absolutely. nothing. It is. What are you in for? Pilferage. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so those, and, and small businesses have to contend with these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there is that cost for businesses. Governments have a cost too. Um, cash transactions tend to be unreported, underreported, and when they are, uh, they, uh, they, they create what is called a tax gap, which is, you know, uh, you really aren't, uh, it, it is when the fiscal authorities aren't really, uh, you know, paid the money that they're owed, and that reflects back on society in really bad ways, you know, less taxes collected by the government, less money for public infrastructure, less money for public services. So there are costs to government. So when you take all these costs and add them up, it's a big figure. Uh, so when we did the cost of cash study uh, in, for the United States, that number comes to roughly about $200 billion a year. And that's a big number. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Mm -hmm. and, and, when you, and if you were to take this as a global picture, I'll throw a couple of anecdotes here. One, uh, in the city of New Delhi, roughly about 11 million inhabitants, last count, maybe 12, 13 uh, right now, who knows. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, those 11 million inhabitants have spent about 72 million hours chasing cash. This cost that I told you about, cost, 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 time cost, and opportunity cost, when you take it all together, it's about 72 million hours that they've spent trying to chase cash. And that can be eliminated. Right. Where does the U.S. land on, like, a spectrum of cashlessness? Like, are we, you know... I mean, the president's going to say we're number one. It doesn't matter really either way. But are we or are we somewhere else? Do we land? Like, where about do we land? I may have to disagree with the president on this one. Yeah? Yeah, we are. Uh, so about a third of all, about 30% of all, uh, uh, you know, uh, retail expenses still happen in cash in the United States. Right. Um, and, uh, and there is a, uh, you know, uh, very funnily, I think... Uh, uh, the United States is a bit of an a pluribus unum when it comes to uh, when it comes to cash. Uh, we are the only country uh, that that you know has a tremendous amount of plurality in the number of cash instrument, cash and cash related instruments we use. Uh, checks are still issued in America. We're the only country that does it. How many of you use checks? Write rent checks. Show of hands. Well, yeah, there you go. Kelly, right? My about, fiance about writes the rent. Fifty percent. <laughs> we are the only country that still uses checks. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Get it together, America. Rebecca, according to the IRC, <laughs> I know, guys. Do you like that transition? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Rebecca, according to the IRC, cash relief programming is one of the fastest growing interventions in the humanitarian community. And you said one of the IRC's goals in the next 10 years is to expand digital readiness around the world. How do you do that? Uh, well, a few things. Uh, so th the cost of cash applies to uh, humanitarian assistance organizations as well. And what we found is that 30% of countries who are in humanitarian crisis actually have the infrastructure to actually handle 
humanitarian electronic payments or digital payments. Um, and so part of our goal is to make sure that we're working with our sister humanitarian agencies, with governments, with donors, and with companies to really invest in that infrastructure and expand access. We work in, in Somalia, in South Sudan, in some of the toughest places in the world. And so connectivity is is a real challenge. And so advocating for that and also encouraging other humanitarian assistance organizations to invest in their own infrastructure. So changing from kind of a, a hard cash to digital payments requires a lot of people to be able to coordinate. So that means your global supply chain, your finance department, your country teams um, who may not have a background with this all really need to come together and say, this is something that we want to do. And so what IRC is, is doing is helping to... Um, Work with the G20 is, uh, you know, to advocate uh, at the highest levels for that investment. And then also uh, working with, in collaboration with a number of uh, mobile network providers to, you know, figure out where they can help and, and where they can invest. I know another company that you guys work with, IRC, is Lyft. Lyft. Again. We love Lyft. David. Talk to me about this partnership with the IRC. Our team actually observed some unusual activity by our IRC using the Lyft platform, where there was rides going in and out and uh, using an ordinary Lyft app. And so we reached out to them pretty uh, proactively, tried to find out what was going on. And they were using Lyft to, to help some of their refugee clients to be able to, to get access to some of the things that they need in their activities of daily life. Uh, going to the grocery store, going applying for getting their children into, into elementary school, uh, going to apply for jobs. And uh, they don't have driver's licenses, they don't have cars, can't rent a car. And so they're, they're some very industrious IRC uh, staff members were, were using Lyft and doing it on their own phones. And so we enabled them with our, our platform called Concierge. It's a web application where now the IRC staff members can request a Lyft for refugee clients whenever they need one, all in the convenient package of, a, of their internet browser. That is absolutely lovely. But I'm glad you brought that up, um, talking about access and talking about, you know, people who are in tough situations. Is going cashless really a good idea for everyone? You know, what about people who are undocumented? What about people who don't have access to banks like I didn't for two years, kind of? You know, what about them? What about us? Like, what, how do we make sure that if you're creating a cashless society, that everybody has the opportunity to participate in it. Well, we were talking about the unbanked, the underbanked populations, and and we do have to be very thoughtful about putting in a regulatory body of of legislation that really makes sure that that folks aren't left behind. I really think that it is. Um, it's going to take private-public partnership um, to do it. There's a lot of tremendous advocacy groups already out there that are working on behalf of uh, underprivileged uh, communities, whether underrepresented minorities, um, disabled, uh, elderly, that, that this is going to be a growing concern, and it's only accelerating. And so the, we, we really do have to put in this body of work that is going to enable them. Otherwise, we will leave them behind. Yeah. Rebecca, do you see some of these issues 
in your work with the IRC? Absolutely. So the IRC also uh, resettles refugees in, in the U.S. In, in 28 cities. And so I think in addition to the access issue is, is one of education. And so making sure that financial literacy and uh, financial inclusion are part of the discussion about cashlessness I think is incredibly important for, for refugees and the most vulnerable. So making sure people understand what cashlessness really means for them. Um, if they don't understand a U.S. banking system or they don't understand a credit score. Um, so I think that that for, for IRC needs to be part of the conversation. Absolutely. Okay, so when you guys walked in, um, there was an opportunity for you to write down some questions. And I'm going to ask the panel kindly to answer these questions. How do we tip in a cashless society? Well, the Chinese have uh, figured out how to do it. The panhandlers in China have carry, carry QR codes. So all you do is CAD and, and you pay. What? Absolutely. Panhandlers carry QR codes. So you'd be like, I don't, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash. And you're like, that's cool. That excuse is uh, not going to work anymore. If you They'd scan. They'd be like, I have a QR code, just CAD and pay if me. If you scan right here, we can make this real quick. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. I can't wait for y'all to get hit with that. I, oh, I hope I'm there. I hope I'm there to see it. I like that. I like that. And David, I specifically want to ask you this question because I know you have three little girls of your own. What will kids do in a world without cash? Will there still be a tooth fairy? (laughs) That's so sad. (laughs) Yeah, it got dark. Yeah. Uh, Tooth Fairy's never really been one of my favorite fictitious characters. (laughs) I actually think it's kind of creepy to think of this old woman coming into my bedroom at night and lifting my pillow and putting money under it. So I wouldn't be uh, against seeing that go away. (laughs) The Tooth Witch. (laughs) Yes, completely. You call her a fairy to make it cute. Your words, not mine. Yeah. (laughs) I'd... I'd say start them young. Put a prepaid card under the, under the pillow. A prepaid card under the pillow. Or the QR code. Yeah. They just have a QR code. I'm definitely not going to tell them about this QR code thing. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? One day there will probably be, it's like, you know, kids who are just like, Dad, and they just slip you the QR code. Come on, help me out. Well, thank you guys so much for this, for participating in this conversation. I can't tell you how amazing it's been for me to hear all these people who are way smarter than me answer these questions that I genuinely had about cashless societies and other things, um, including the Tooth Fairy. But that's it for tonight's show, guys. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. That was such a good time. I'm still thinking about it. And this is the last episode of the season. It's been great hosting this podcast, and I'm really going to miss you all. Keep in touch. Stay subscribed to the podcast feed for updates and find us on Twitter. I'm at iSmashFizzle. MasterCard is at MasterCard News. And Gimlet Creative is at Gimlet Creative. I want to thank Ravi, Rebecca, and David for joining me. Special thanks to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, the International Rescue Committee, and Lyft. 
And thank you to the wonderful team at the Jerome L. Green Space for hosting us. This episode was produced by Julia Batero, Caitlin Baguki, and Carrie Ann Thomas. Special thanks to Victoria Barner. Katherine Anderson mixed this episode, and Zach Schmidt is our technical director. Creative direction was from Nazanin Rafsajani. Our editor is Sarah Geis. Thank you for being such a beautiful audience. I'll miss you. <laughs>